Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Hundreds attended a somber vigil in downtown Nashville last night to remember the victims killed in the school shooting on Monday. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports musical performers and First Lady Jill Biden joined civic and state leaders who led the observance. Nashville Mayor John Cooper opened the vigil by recognizing police who rushed the shooter at the Covenant School and asking for a future free of such fears. With God's help, Let us resolve to go forward to create a better future and a future that does not repeat this week's tragedy. First Lady Jill Biden stood alongside dozens of local and state officials and other guests as several spoke about their hopes for healing. The event marks one of several vigils and observances expected to be held this week across the community. Six were killed in the shooting, including three children, the school's leader, custodian, and a teacher. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Nashville. The State Department is urging China not to overreact to the Taiwan president's stopover in the U.S. Officials here say she's only in transit on her way to and from Central America, but China's embassy in Washington isn't buying that, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The Taiwanese leader is stopping in New York on her way to Latin America and then in Los Angeles on her way home, where she's expected to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The U.S. officials are calling this a normal stopover, but China's top diplomat in Washington, Zhu Xuwen, says this is a cover for Taiwan's president to advocate for independence. The U.S. keeps saying that transit is not a visit and that there are precedents, but it should not use past mistakes as excuses for repeating them today. She warns that there could be a, quote, serious confrontation in the U.S.-China relationship. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. More than 30 people are dead after a ferry caught fire late yesterday in the southern Philippines. As Ashley Westerman reports from Manila, officials say some 200 people have been rescued and more than 20 have been taken to the hospital. After the fire broke out, the ferry was towed to a nearby island. It's still unclear how many people the ferry was actually carrying. Jim Hadaman, governor of Basilan province, told local media that at least seven people are still missing and rescue efforts are ongoing. And while ferry transport is popular in the Philippines, inconsistent inspections and bad safety records mean these types of accidents are not rare here. Ashley Westerman reporting from Manila. There's no no word on a cause. Asian markets closed in mixed territory today. The Nikkei in Japan down three-tenths of a percent. The Hang Seng up more than a half percent. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The number of pedestrians killed by drivers in Massachusetts is up 35 percent since 2021. A new report by the pedestrian advocacy group Walk Boston finds 101 pedestrians died last year. Most of those deaths happened in neighborhoods close to highways and industrial areas. Brendan Carney with Walk Boston says that's because drivers speed up in those neighborhoods. They're driving much faster because the the roadways were planned years ago as more commuter through routes, despite there now being 
you know, people living there. Walk Boston is advocating for better enforcement of speed limits and other safety laws to help reduce the number of deaths. Governor Maura Healey has signed off on a nearly $400 million supplemental budget. Nearly a third of that will be used to grow the state's semiconductor chip industry. Healey wants to also use the money to match potential grants from the federal government. The budget includes funds for food assistance and the state's shelter systems as well as struggling child care centers. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is calling for new regulations on the nation's banking system. During a Capitol Hill hearing yesterday, Presley questioned financial regulators about recent bank collapses, including the fall of Silicon Valley Bank. She blamed the 2018 passage of a bill that relaxed some banking regulations. In the aftermath of the collapse of SVB and Signature Bank, it's clear that the Republican deregulation bill shares the blame alongside Treasury, Federal Reserve, and the FDIC due to the lapses in supervision and oversight. Presley asked regulators to provide a list by May of new regulations they'd recommend to strengthen the banking system. Tributes are pouring in for Boston civil rights activist and political leader Mel King. He died Tuesday at the age of 94. King was the first black mayoral candidate to make the general election in Boston in 1983. Former Boston City Councilor and mayoral candidate Tito Jackson knew King for decades. He says he was inspired by King's commitment to help others help themselves. When people have opportunity, when you speak and uh, breathe and love life into them, they excel. King also founded the South End Technology Center to help prepare people in communities of color for the workforce. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Health and Wellness Spring Expo in Waltham this Sunday, featuring massage, acupuncture, and other mini-treatments. Learn more at healthandwellnessshow.net. In sports, it is opening day at Fenway Park. Red Sox host the Baltimore Orioles this afternoon. We'll have a preview of the new season coming up at about an hour from now here on Morning Edition. At the Garden tonight, the Bruins skate with the Columbus Blue Jackets and Celtics are on the road to play the Milwaukee Bucks. In our weather forecast, sunshine today. Highs only in the 40s, though. Tonight, it'll be clear with lows going down into the 20s. Tomorrow, cloudy, maybe an afternoon shower. Highs in the mid 40s and we'll see rain on Saturday with temperatures in the 50s. 36 degrees right now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. WBUR and NPR fight hard to get at the truth, to hold powerful people to account, and to shine a light where there is none. Our contributing listeners help to fund our work, not because they have to, but because they believe, as we do, that journalism with real impact is essential to our democracy. Join them. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks. And we're asking you to give today. It's very important to give today because we have a great match on the table, but this ends in just a few hours. If you can give to WBUR during this spring fundraiser, you will have your donation matched by 50%, but that's only until 10 o'clock this morning. So call with your pledge, 1-800-909-9287, or pledge online at WBUR.org. And we thank the generous members of our Murrow Society for allowing us to be able to match 
your contributions by 50%. So take a couple of minutes before we go back to news. Make that pledge now. Good morning. I had to get that in. My name is Deborah Becker, and I'm in the studio this morning with Robin Young. Hi, Robin. Hi to you. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and you can make your pledge there. And it's for all the news that's going to be coming to you coming up. I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's how we keep going. And I'm looking at some of the news this morning and sometimes, Deb, I'm just like, what? You know, we live... We live in strange times right now. I'm just reading mm. that a school district in Wisconsin, Waukesha, a school district, um, is banning a group of little first graders. They're having a concert coming up. You know, the big spring concerts, and everybody's yeah. excited. And they were going to sing Molly Cyrus and Dolly Parton's Rainbow Land. And the school said, no, you cannot. Here oh. are some of the lyrics. Living in a rainbow land where everything goes as planned, and I smile because I know if I try, we could really make a difference in this world. Oh, no, can't have that. I mean, we live... In right. very strange times. And we're trying to navigate them here. We're trying to bring you all the news. We're trying to understand, you know, how different uh, opinions are across the country, where they come from. But we need your help. You know, mm-hmm. it's just such a volatile, weird time we're in. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. It's fraught. fraught. Mm. And and so we need your help to, to navigate it. Uh, please do that now. As Deb said, you'll uh, add 50%. You do the math uh, to whatever your donation is, but only by 10 o'clock. But you'll also get your name in this drawing for this trip. I am still trying to figure out where I'd want to go if somebody said, here's $10,000 and go. And you know, I was thinking... You could go to New York and spend that in a weekend, (laughs) just on your room, (laughs) you know, but you can go anywhere in the world you want to go. Who's this from? Uh, It's from Shorts Travel, $10,000 trip voucher for you to decide where you want to go, what you want to do with that money, how you want to travel. If you're, you know, yeah. if you're in Robin's category, you could spend it in a weekend in a hotel in New York. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Know. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just, I'm tired. So I'm sure. But, but think about that while you listen to this. It was a year of firsts in Massachusetts politics, beginning with Maura Healy, who became the state's first elected female governor and one of the first openly gay governors in the country. I hope tonight shows you that you can be whoever you want to be. Massachusetts women shattered the political glass ceiling, taking over five of six statewide offices. Elizabeth Warren says it took too long, but she says the conversation about women in politics has changed since her first bid for the U.S. Senate 10 years ago. People say, oh, you should run. You have some great ideas. Of course, you're going to lose. What mattered is that you were a woman and you could not win. At least we're not having that conversation today. The conversation might change, but our commitment to independent journalism and keeping you informed in the months and years ahead won't. I'm reporter Anthony Brooks, and I cover politics for WBUR. And you can help Anthony bring you more of his excellent, excellent political Mm. coverage uh, of the new leadership in Massachusetts and and all of the political news. Our coverage depends on your financial support. So start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call one 800 909 
888-900-9287. And remember, if you can call by 10 o'clock this morning, please try to do that because we have a 50% match on the table. Your pledge is matched by 50% thanks to some generous members of our Murrow Society, but only until 10 a.m. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Just hearing uh, Senator Warren talk about just 10 years ago, it was Mm -hmm. thought a woman couldn't win. You know, happy Women's History Month, which we're drawing to a close. I was thinking, when I first signed a contract a long time ago with the TV station, it said I couldn't become pregnant or otherwise disfigured. Hey, mm. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We have come yeah, uh, some a distance. A long way, baby. <laughs> we, we have a little way to go. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We so appreciate you. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, is in the U.S. today. Yes, he's in New York as part of a high-stakes trip to Central America and the U.S. Taiwan is heading into a presidential election year. And, of course, China is closely watching the visit as well, saying it, quote, damages peace and threatening to take resolute measures to fight back. With us now is NPR's Emily Fang in Taipei to explain why this trip is so important. Hi, Emily. Hi, Sasha. Good morning. Tell us more about this trip and the itinerary for the president. So as you mentioned, she's in New York today. She's going to have a private dinner with uh, a U.S. conservative think tank, the Hudson Institute. And then she heads to Belize and Guatemala in Central America. These are two countries that still have formal relations with Taiwan. And Tsai's visit to Central America comes at a pretty critical moment for Taiwan because just last week, Honduras, another Latin American country, switched its recognition from Taiwan to Beijing. So the real excuse for this trip actually has been for her to go to Central America, but she's stopping over in the U.S. Before she heads to Taiwan, she'll stop again in uh, Los Angeles, where she's scheduled to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And the fact that they're doing this meeting in the U.S. is actually a bit of a compromise because McCarthy originally wanted to go to Taiwan. But to lower the temperature geopolitically in the room, this meeting is going to be in the U.S. Tsai and the Taiwan government have been really, really clear. They don't want to be pushed around by China with this compromise, but they're also going to travel without being intimidated. Here's Tsai right before departing from Taiwan yesterday. She says, external pressure will not hinder our determination to go to the world. We are calm and confident. We will neither yield nor provoke. And Emily, how, what is China saying about this? Well, unsurprisingly, China is not happy. China's government body on Taiwan issues yesterday had this statement. If Taiwan's regional leader, Tsai Ing-wen, meets with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, it would be a provocation. And they said they were going to take resolute measures to counter this. Now, what those measures are is not clear. And China says this every time Taiwan's president meets with U.S. officials or travels to the U.S. Before the pandemic, by the way, Tsai came to the U.S. basically once a year. But Beijing does have a serious range of retaliatory measures it could take. For example, last summer when former Speaker Nancy Pelosi came to Taiwan, China responded with this multi-day military exercise around the island. And that's a really big reason why McCarthy is meeting Tsai in L.A. this time. 
And the U.S. has been really careful about this meeting. They're calling her visit a stopover. This is not an official trip to the U.S. The official language is that she is simply transiting through as a private individual, albeit uh, a transit that's going to take several days. And interestingly, at the same time that Tsai is in the U.S., former Taiwanese President Ma Ying-jeou is in China. Ma's office has said this trip is uh, a coincidence, that the timing was not planned. But in a way, his trip to China while Tsai is in the U.S. counterbalances the political risks of Tsai's trip. And in terms of Tsai's trip, what would success look like for her? She needs to defend Taiwan's interests without rocking the boat, because this year is an election year for Taiwan. They have a presidential race, just like us, January of 2024. Tsai is not running, but she needs to prove to her party that strengthening ties with the U.S. is worth the risk of worsening relations with China. And so she needs to come back with some kind of concrete benefit. Right now, uh, relations are close, but for example, U.S. weapons sales to Taiwan have been delayed. So Tsai is under pressure to deliver and show that Taiwan has friends in the world, including the U.S. That's NPR's Emily Feng in Taipei. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Sasha. Drug or Drug overdoses continue to be one of the leading causes of accidental deaths in the U.S., but yesterday's FDA approval of the nasal spray Narcan, an overdose-reversing drug, could change that. So far, Narcan nasal spray has been available as a prescription drug, but soon Americans will be able to access it in convenience stores, vending machines, or even online. Dr. Scott Hadlin is a pediatrician and addiction specialist at Mass General Hospital for Children and Harvard Medical School in Boston. At the FDA panel last month, he testified as an independent expert in favor of the approval. Doctor, you work with children and teens. Why did you support this? Well, it's a really an easy decision. Uh, we're at a point right now in this overdose crisis where since the turn of the century, we've had more than a million overdose deaths. And we're, these are increasing. We're now at a point where more than 100,000 people die every year. Narcan is a medication that is safe. It's effective. It has virtually no downside to administering it. And there really is no reason that it shouldn't be widely available to save the lives of the so many people who die each year. So if someone takes Narcan just by, by, by itself, it's, it's fine. That's right. It's a medication with basically no adverse effects, and so it's very safe to administer. So then explain to us how the drug works on someone who has overdosed. What happens when somebody overdoses is that opioids, and and in this day and age, it's most commonly fentanyl that's getting into people's systems. Um, Opioids bind to receptors in the body and make it so that a person stops breathing. And that's what ultimately ends up uh, killing a person. And so what Narcan is doing is it's getting in and it's uh, releasing the fentanyl or other opioids from those receptors and essentially in just seconds or even just minutes, reversing that overdose and saving a person's life. And since Narcan is a medication that's sprayed up the nose, it's very easy to administer. Almost anybody can do it with very little training needed. So now that the FDA approval has happened, how worried are you that costs may prevent access to many who need it? This is really the central worry right now is that, you know, a key step, and and we celebrate this step, that the FDA has made this medication now widely available. We're anticipating that starting in probably the summer, Narcan will be available all across the United States. So this is huge. Unfortunately, many of us are still worried about the cost of this medication. It's one thing to make it available. It's another thing to make it affordable to people. And as somebody who works with uh, with families that have been affected by this overdose crisis every day. I know that if the price is too high, many families and patients just simply won't buy it. 
Yeah, according to GoodRx, 130 bucks for an average price of a two-dose box. Um, I know if you make something more expensive, it makes it harder to get, and also people might want to do something terrible to try and get it. That's right. And, you know, I've seen as some of my patients who, when I prescribe the medication and they have to pay a copay, even if their insurance requires a copay for Narcan that's 20 or $30, some of my patients and families will just say, hey, that's too expensive for me. That's not something I can afford right now. And then they won't have it when they need it. There's a lot of stigma, doctor, attached to drug users. I'm sure you know that. When you testified for the FDA, you talked about the need to change public outlook, change public perception. How do you think that can happen? Well, I think that making Narcan available uh, reflects the fact that almost everybody in this country at this point is aware of the overdose crisis. Many of us have uh, family or friends, or in my case, patients who, you know, have been personally affected by this crisis. We've lost loved ones. Even when we haven't lost loved ones, we've watched as people have struggled with addiction and we've worried about them. And so what Narcan does is it makes, or what this, uh, this FDA approval does, is it makes the, the availability of Narcan all over the country normalized. It tells us all that this is something that we should all have with us, that we should make available in our communities, and that we should use to save the lives of people who, who might use drugs. Doctor, what would you say to someone who says that if Narcan is easier to get, that no one will fear da- the danger of an overdose? This is an unfortunately common argument, and I refute it. Um, if you know, There are many examples in public health of situations like this where people worry that if we make a safety measure available, it will make people behave in a different way. So for example, in the 1980s, when we talked about making seat belts mandatory for people when they're driving, uh, people made the argument that maybe that would drive people to, um, to be more reckless um, when they drive their cars. And that it just hasn't been borne out. And in countless public health examples, this isn't what happens. And so I have personally watched as people use Narcan to keep themselves safe and not in a way that uh, results in them using more drugs. Dr. Scott Hadlin is a pediatrician and addiction specialist at Mass General Hospital for Children and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Doctor, thanks. Thanks for having me. The rapper Afro Man scored hits in the early 2000s with Colt 45 and Because I Got High. But it's his newest music videos that are making headlines because they feature footage of police raiding his home. As NPR's Rachel Treisman reports, some of those officers are now suing him for invasion of privacy. The story starts last August when law enforcement officers in Adams County, Ohio, got a warrant to search Joseph Foreman's home on suspicion of drug trafficking and kidnapping. They didn't find anything, and the rapper was never charged. He wasn't even home. But he alleges that police damaged his property, traumatized his kids, and stole $400 during the search, which was captured on his home security system. Police have since said they miscounted the cash and didn't respond to NPR's request for comment. Afro Man weighed his options. I asked myself, as a powerless Black man in America, what can I do? And only thing I could come up with was make a funny rap song about them and make some money, use the money to pay for the damages, and move on. The next month, he released Lemon Pound Cake, an album full of songs about the raid with music videos featuring surveillance footage. The title track is about an officer who's walking across the kitchen with his gun drawn when he appears to get distracted by a cake stand on the counter. He's an Adams County Sheriff. He's hungry and he's big as hell. He was sniffing for weed. 
Then he smelled another smell. Afferman also made merchandise and posted on social media, calling out the officers and mocking their appearances. Now seven of them are suing him, his label, and a video distribution company, saying they've suffered everything from humiliation to death threats as a result. They want proceeds from his music and merchandise and for the posts and videos to be taken down. Afferman finds it laughable. These big bad cops that came to kill me in front of my kids are being beat up and bullied by those little corny rap songs I made about them. He says he turned a bad thing into a good thing and has gotten even more exposure and opportunities out of it. I don't want to pay these guys nothing, but worst case scenario, if I had to pay them, all the publicity and fame they give me, <laughs> it might be fair to, to, to shuffle them a few coins. Afferman says he was already planning to sue the police for defamation and is now in the process of filing a counterclaim. He also wants to release another album with a song about each officer. He'd call it something like Lemon Pound Cake Part 2. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with Simone Lee. A history-making exhibition makes its U.S. debut. Opens April 6th. ICABoston.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. So when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. And make your contribution today during WBUR Spring Fundraiser and make it by 10 o'clock this morning. And this is why we have a 50% match on the table, but only until 10 a.m. A a group of generous listeners from our Murrow Society decided that they will match every every contribution that comes in before 10 a.m. So that means that your pledge to WBUR, your payment uh, for local public radio news, if you will, uh, will be matched by 50% until 10 o'clock this morning. So if you want to make sure that your money really has a little bit more oomph to it, do it now. Call 1-800-909-9287 or pledge online at WBUR.org. I'm Deborah Becker in the studio this morning with Robin Young. Hi, Robin. You can be the oomph. I like that. (laughs) That's what we want. Oomph. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. And it's because of all the, you know, all the news and information, and all the time, if you've been here for a long time listening to WBUR and NPR, you know that we have so many new, young, vibrant voices. It's Mm -hmm. been so exciting. And there's so many people that you've come to know. I'm looking at one, Deb Becker. And we're- You're saying I'm old, Robin? No, I'm saying you you are fine wine, my friend. (laughs) And you know, there's so many people like that, that they start to feel like family. And and I'm thinking of Sylvia Pajolia, Mm. who just announced that she was going to be retiring. And we're like, what? And let's listen to a little bit of another name that I'm sure is like someone you fully think is at your dining room table or your breakfast table, Scott Simon. You know, these people you've come to depend on. Uh, this past weekend, um, Scott talked to Sylvia about her incredible career. She's one of ours, you know, a girl from born in Rhode Island, grew up here, I think Cambridge. Uh, let's listen to their conversation. Sylvia, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you remember a song I once 
wrote and sung for you when you got an award in Boston? <laughs> I remember that well. Let me just, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Pajoli. <laughs> Real low point in your career? <laughs> no, 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 Scott. That's, that's, that's very moving. I really love that. Uh, do you think you'll miss seeing something flash in the news and running off to get close to it? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's an ingrained habit now. There will be several stories that I will still be very curious to follow, but I hope after a while I, I start branching out and do some other things, too. Thank you for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, For Scott. every story, for uh, the support you've given every colleague. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Sylvia Pajoli, I really... Could I get you to sock out for us? <laughs> this is Sylvia Poggioli in Rome. NPR's longest serving foreign correspondent. Arrivederci, Sylvia. Arrivederci. Oh, it's so mm. beautiful. Mm. Sylvia Poggioli leaving yeah. National Public Sylvia 41 Pugioli. years. Uh, you know, and, and not, okay, she was perhaps the best dressed person at NPR, just stunning and beautiful. And just plowed into every war zone, uh, just, mm. you know, brave and uh, took on every world leader, didn't care. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org to thank her, to invest in the future, Sylvia Pajoli's, mm -hmm. and the news that they will bring. It doesn't happen without you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And remember, we have a 50% match on the table this morning, only until 10 a.m. So your pledge for the news, for all of the news and information, whether it's news from Sylvia Porgioli, the international news, local news, it's all here for you. We need you to pledge for it today. 1-800-909-9287. We also have a sweepstakes that ends tomorrow, where if your name is chosen, you will get a voucher to go on a dream anywhere. vacation. Anywhere in the world. I've decided. I'm oh. okay. First, I'll start in Holland, a uh, home of my mother's people. Okay. Then I have to think more. Okay. About it. <laughs> uh, 1-800-909-9287 WBUR.org. Where would you go? Where would you go? We take you everywhere around the world here on the radio. Where would you go if you could choose? Call now. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. And from EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime from anywhere with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at ebsco.com. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
It's unclear how many people may have been injured or killed in last night's crash of two U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters near Fort Campbell, Kentucky. The helicopters went down during a routine training mission. The 101st Airborne Division is based at Fort Campbell. It reports several casualties. Mourners in Tennessee gathered in downtown Nashville last night to remember the six people shot to death this week at a private Christian elementary school. NPR's Claudia Grisales is in Nashville. Dozens of local and state officials led this vigil as many in the crowd held candles. And we heard moving performances by several musicians, including singer Cheryl Crow. You could see many friends and families huddling in groups, embracing each other, holding each other up in some cases, and some praying and some visibly crying. Police are still investigating why a 28-year-old former student killed three students and three adults at the Covenant School. Responding officers shot and killed the attacker, who was armed with two assault-style weapons and a handgun. A correspondent with the Wall Street Journal is under arrest in Russia on espionage charges. Russia's top security agency says Evan Gershkovich is being held on suspicion of spying. The journal says it vehemently denies the allegations against Gershkovich. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts members of Congress are calling for action after Monday's shooting at a Nashville elementary school. Congresswoman and Minority Whip Catherine Clark wants Republican leaders to allow debate on a bill that would mandate background checks and would ban assault weapons. Bring it to the floor. Put yourself on record. Show the American people your priorities. Is it our kids or is it guns? Senator Ed Markey is calling on Congress to pass a bill to fund federal health research into gun violence. There are questions about the wastewater in greater Boston. It ends up at the Deer Island Wastewater Treatment Plant with the sludge then made into fertilizer and spread on land. But as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, this common practice is facing scrutiny because of the toxic forever chemicals known as PFAS. PFAS chemicals are in the wastewater going into Deer Island, and they are in the sludge-based fertilizer or biosolids that come out of it. Environmental advocates say this type of fertilizer should be banned. But Betsy Riley, with the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, says they're waiting for clearer science. My hope would be that there is still a place for a biosolids application. If it is not appropriate to do any longer for PFAS or other reasons, then we will have to be looking at other ways of dealing with it. The other options are to burn the sludge or throw it in a landfill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley will, the, will be this spring's keynote commencement speaker at Framingham State University. Presley made history when she became the first woman of color elected to the Boston City Council and the first from the state elected to Congress. Framingham State's graduation ceremony will be held May 21st. The time is 735. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. In sports, Red Sox begin their new season this afternoon. They host the Baltimore Orioles in the first game of the year. Celtics visit the Milwaukee Bucks tonight, and the Bruins will be at home to play the Columbus Blue Jackets. In our forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the low 
40s. Tonight, it'll be clear with lows in the 20s. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, maybe a shower in the afternoon, highs in the mid-40s. It is 34 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Thousands of Israelis have been protesting a proposal to weaken Israel's judiciary. Earlier this week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agreed to delay the changes that he and his right-wing allies want, but protesters still object to an overhaul that they say would politicize the court system. Many Palestinians and Arab Israelis say the Israeli courts are already deeply politicized. Our co-host Michelle Martin spoke with Sosan Zahir about this. Zahir is a human rights attorney and a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Israelis, some would say that we need to give him a chance. Others are more suspicious and doubtful and have already declared their intention that they are continuing with the demonstrations. However, for Palestinians, you would rarely find a Palestinian among the protesters. Not because we support the judicial amendments that the Netanyahu government was uh, leading to, but because we don't regard in the first place Israel as a democracy because it hasn't been a, a, a democracy for us mm-hmm. and the Supreme Court wasn't a protector of human rights of Palestinians. These demonstrations against this judicial overhaul have been huge and you're saying that the 20% of the population who are Palestinian is Israelis, you're saying that it wouldn't have been reflected in those demonstrations. Would that be accurate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it's we, we. I think that a lot of us uh, tried to check what our role would be as uh, Palestinian human rights lawyers, leaders, whatever. Because the the issue here is that you cannot talk about democracy when there is occupation. It doesn't matter if you are a Palestinian citizen or a Jewish citizen in Israel. You cannot talk about democratic values when there is occupation. We are regarded as the other without relation to the protests. So all the more so when the protest began, we didn't want to be part in a national protest when we didn't feel that we are part of the nation. Can I just stop you for a minute? You were never tempted. I mean, given that I just want to mention for people who are not you know, fully aware of your background, you are, as we said, a human rights lawyer. You have argued before the Supreme Court. You were not tempted at all to participate? Uh, no, I, well, frankly, uh, no, because uh, the opposition or the protest did not create an equal uh, basis to include everyone. Uh, I'm explaining that to you, mm-hmm. but if ask me if I was tempted, no, of course I was tempted. The difference between us and the Israelis is that Israelis thought they were living in a democracy. Israelis believed that Israel was a democracy. And so part of it is that they are fighting for the image of democracy that from our point of view, they never really had. Before we let you go, and forgive me, I am asking you to speculate. Do you have a prediction about what will happen? 
Uh, now, it's true that I'm Palestinian, but I still live in Israel and I'm aware about all the developments. And I think that it's not the first time that Netanyahu says something in order to uh, save time and gain time uh, so that he will be able to uh, reach his own political goals later. And this is what a lot of us think will happen. Netanyahu basically said that he will suspend knowing that he will have a period of time of rest, gathering himself and his coalition so that later he will be able to pass all what he wants. Thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. Thank you very much, Michelle. That's human rights attorney Sosan Zahair speaking with our colleague Michelle Martin from Haifa, Israel. Across the country, Republican lawmakers are pursuing legislative crackdowns on social issues from abortion and transgender rights to drag performances. And the latest NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll indicates that Republicans risk being out of step with voters. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell has been looking into this and joins me now. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, good morning. In terms of Republican messaging and legislating, how prevalent are these culture war issues? Well, right now, at least nine states are considering bills to restrict or criminalize drag shows, and more than a dozen states are considering bills banning instruction around gender and sexual orientation. Now, that is in addition to states like Florida, where policies on these issues are already law. The governor there, Ron DeSantis, put it this way in January. Florida is where woke goes to die. Now, this is central to his political image and could be central to his political ambitions. DeSantis is expected to run for president, and, you know, he has not announced yet. But he is pushing ahead with more restrictive laws for schools, and Florida's legislature is also considering a ban on abortions at six weeks. So at the national level, House Republicans passed a parental rights bill last week, and that was aimed at giving parents more oversight in schools. But critics say the policy could lead to book bans and measures blocking sex ed or other topics in the classroom. How are voters responding to this political approach? Yeah, so our latest poll shows that a majority of respondents oppose bills that would criminalize providing gender transition care for minors. Now, 54% of registered voters said they would oppose such legislation, and 43% support criminalizing that care. But when you dig deeper, nearly two-thirds of Republicans support criminalizing gender transition care. But the number to watch is the independents. As we know, independents have been critical in recent elections, and they may have a major impact on next year's presidential election, you know, more than half of those independents do not want to criminalize that care. And that's just one issue in this debate. What about other issues? You know, the poll also asked about banning drag shows, which has become kind of another flashpoint in this moment. And again, we see 58 percent of respondents oppose restrictions, including 57 percent of independents. That once again puts the 61 percent of Republicans who support the bans at odds with the national sentiment. You know, and this isn't the only cultural issue where Republicans are pursuing legislation at odds with the majority of the national electorate. We have seen poll after poll showing that a large majority of Americans support protections for abortion rights, for example. And that issue costs Republicans in the midterms significantly. Kelsey, if the polling indicates that most people oppose these Republican-led positions, then how risky is it for Republicans to keep going along with this kind of messaging? You know, to stay with abortion, some within their own party are warning about overstepping. Take Nancy Mace. Uh, She's a Republican congresswoman from South Carolina, and she has been introducing bills to set more moderate positions for the party, particularly when it comes to attempts to restrict abortion rights and access to contraception. These are not messages that we can stand behind. And we have to stand up to the extremism and show some balance. 
But the focus from Republicans on social issues has actually started to shift some opinions. Our polling team asked about gender transition care for minors in 2021, and support for criminalizing that care went from just 28 percent to now 43 percent. And that is a huge shift. The next election really is still far away. Many Republicans believe they can convince more people in that time, though there really is a risk that they could go too far. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You are listening to WBUR right now. I'm Deborah Becker. I'm in the studio this morning with Robin Young, and we're taking just a couple of minutes before we go back to the news to ask you to please make a pledge to WBUR. Make a pledge for all the news and information that you get every single day. Make a pledge because you expect us to live up to a journalistic standard, and you believe that we do. We're counting on your pledges so we can continue to live up to that standard and bring you news with the uh, knowledge that we have editorial independence. The number again to call 800-909-9287. The website where you can pledge is WBUR.org. And you've only got about two hours or so left to take advantage of a 50% pledge that's on the table, some mm-hmm. generous, or 50% match rather, that's on the table. Some generous members of our Murrow Society have agreed to match every pledge by 50%, but only until 10 a.m. So do it now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Here's where I say that that number, 1-800-909-9287, which is so hard to remember by itself, actually stands for 1-800-90.9-WBUR. Mm-hmm. We went to great trouble to do that, and then we never tell you that, that that's what it is. 1-800-909-9287. It's for all the news that you've been hearing, all the news that is yet to come, actually, that we need to pay for. And I'm excited about some of the local news. We have this guy that's come in to run the T, who's from the Long Island Railroad. Mm-hmm. I'm a Long Island girl. I'm telling you, grew up with that train. They run on time, doll. So I'm very excited about that. And we have uh, at Here and Now, I've got just such great partners on Here and Now. Here's one of them, Deepa Fernandez. Hi, this is Deepa Fernandez of Here and Now. Earlier this year, we met a Boston father, Fredley Charles. I spend my day taking care of my daughter every day because my wife is at work. As a young child, Fredley came to the U.S. legally with his family, and while they all successfully changed their status to permanently stay here, government snafus meant Fredley never got a green card. Things got bad fast when he landed in the criminal justice system for little more than being black. Finally, charges against him were dropped, and he thought the nightmare was over. But then immigration picked him up. I came here legally. I did all my paperwork. I got everything I'm supposed to have. 
And now I have to fight for my life and I have to fight for my family's life. Fredley faces deportation and his story shows how broken the immigration system is. It's your support for our journalism and stories like Fredley's that can lead to change. Please help. Deepa Fernandez. I love saying her name. 1-800-909-9287 to answer her plea. And when I'm asked all the time, here's the answer. Hispanic, Indian, and raised in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. She has this incredible, wonderful conversation, uh, combination and worldview. She cares deeply about things like immigration, and we've just loved having her on the program. If you have two or if, if there's a voice uh, on NPR or WBUR that you're saying, yeah, that voice speaks to me, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And we have a 50% match that we, we can't stress enough why it's so important for you to play now because at 10 o'clock this morning this match goes off the table and it's 50% matching your contributions until 10 a.m. So if you'd like your donation to go 50% further, that's that's a lot of money. Help us out now with your pledge. It takes just about two minutes. Support all the news and information that you get from WBUR and know that you have helped pay for this radio station because you are where the money comes from. We would not be here without you. So thank you so so much for allowing us to be able to gather the information for you, present it to you, and keep you better informed. But this is the time that we really need you to help pay for it. Yeah. 1-800-909-9287. Tiziana Deering, our dear colleague, just tweeted out, uh, here now, Robin, laying on her old Long Island accent. <laughs> I'm telling you. We go to the mall. Oh, you, did you go to the mall? You and, do that so well. Well, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org for all the voices, all the different voices and the different sounds that come out of this radio station that you're listening to. Please call. And we want to send you away. We do want You, you could go to Long Island. <laughs> oh I'm telling you. We do want to send you away. First, I want to remember yes. that people know about this match that we yes. have only until 10, until 10. Uh, this morning, that if you make a pledge, by then you're, you will get uh, your pledge will be matched by 50% but also we have a sweepstakes mm-hmm. ending tomorrow that if your name is drawn and you make your pledge by tomorrow you're drawn in the sweepstakes you get a voucher for a dream vacation anywhere anywhere you could go to Long Island <laughs> I am telling you <laughs> I can't here's the number if I can say it it's 800-909-9287 or the website WBUR.org thanks Support for NPR comes from this station and from SelectQuote. For over 35 years, SelectQuote has been committed to helping customers find life insurance that fits their budget. Customers can shop multiple life insurance carriers and compare rates at SelectQuote.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The Red Sox are scheduled to begin their new season in just a few hours. They'll be hosting the Baltimore Orioles at Fenway, and there are a few new faces and some new rules in the game this year. For a season preview, we're joined by Chad Finn from the Boston Globe. Good morning. 
Good morning. It sounds like uh, they should have a, it's a whole new ball game slogan or something like that this season. <laughs> uh, one of the biggest new names uh, on the team is a player from Japan. Tell us about him. Yes, Masataka Yoshida. He's a left fielder, came over from Japan in the offseason. The Red Sox got him immediately when he became available in free agency because they outbid uh, every other major league team by a great amount of money. So he signed right away. There was some skepticism coming into spring training about his ability level, uh, whether he was going to be able to adjust to the major leagues. But he's been fantastic in the spring and was just outstanding in the World Baseball Classic for Japan, who won the tournament. So there's a, a lot of hope around him now that he can really be a, a big contributor and a popular player this season. Who else should we be looking out for? Uh, rookie first baseman Tristan Cassis is really exciting. He's kind of a quirky personality, paints his fingernails. Uh, last time I saw him, they were painted red, so that, that seems fitting. Uh, he's a big guy, has home run power, so he could be a productive player right away. And because of his personality, should be somebody that uh, Red Sox fans really fall for as long as he's doing the job. And we mentioned new rules. Uh, the biggest one is the pitch clock, right? It'll force pitchers to move faster. Um, what do you think of this, and uh, what's what's the reaction been? I think it's about as close to unanimous as you can get uh, with anything having to do with baseball. Broadcasters, players, managers, fans love it because it takes all the wasted time out of games that have just gotten out of hand where – a uh, pitcher would throw a pitch, batter steps out of the batter's box, adjusts all his gear, gets back in 10 seconds later. The pitcher uh, takes forever to get his signal from the catcher. That takes another 15, 20 seconds. Well, the pitch clock now, you have 20 seconds between pitches. A hitter has to be ready to go at eight seconds on that clock. So it's just eliminated all the downtime right away. And uh, it's made the game much faster paced, much more exciting. And the biggest complaint I've heard about it is that they should have done it 10 years ago. What about some other rule changes? Well, they made the bases bigger. They call them pizza boxes now. <laughs> and they are almost exactly, <laughs> it's, a, it's a large pizza now. It used to be maybe a small 12 inch pizza. So that should enhance stolen bases, which is kind of an element that's gone out of the game as baseball has become more analytics oriented, math oriented, that should bring that element of the game back. And again, another way of making it uh, more fun than it has been the last few years. So the Red Sox finished in last place last year. Um, so you sound a little hopeful that it might be better this year. I think the uh, feeling at the end of spring training was a lot better than it was at the beginning. Uh, they lost Xander Bogarts in free agency, a really popular, productive Red Sox player who'd been here since 2013. So there was uh, a little bit of disappointment going into camp that he wasn't here. But as you get to see some of the new guys, Yoshida and Cassis, and see that uh, pitcher Chris Sale looks healthy for the first time in almost five years, the optimism is a little bit higher now than it was when they first arrived. And uh, I think they're they're going to be better than a, a 500 team. I don't know how much better, but uh, they should be should be pretty decent, pretty fun to watch. Chad Finn is a sports columnist with the Boston Globe, as well as editor of the new book called The Boston Globe Story of the Red Sox. Thanks for speaking with Morning Edition. Thanks for having me. And for anyone heading to the Red Sox game today, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says, bundle up.
Well, it was 52 degrees out when the Bruins played at Fenway back on January 2nd for the Winter Classic. That is not going to be the case today for the Sox home opener. It's going to be a chilly one down at Fenway this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. It's the wind that's the real issue, though. It will be 15 to 25 miles per hour sustained, blowing from third to first base, gusting to 35 miles per hour for the entire game. So that will mean wind chill values right around 30. Bundle up, layer up, but don't forget your sunglasses, too. WBUR supporters include the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Gu Wenda. United Nations opens April 1st. Plan your visit at PEM.org. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. And please call now with your pledge for local news and information, for national news and information, for international news and information. It's the whole package here on WBUR for you every single day, and we're asking you to help pay for it today. We don't have a paywall. We don't have subscription fees. We're here for you, but we really need to keep strong, and this is where the money comes from to be your source of news and information. So please do your part. Make your pledge today, and also, if you can do it in the next two hours. Your pledge is matched by 50%. Our 50% match ends at 10 o'clock this morning. So call now 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Deborah Becker in the studio this morning with Robin Young. Good morning. Good morning to you. What it has been. We want to thank everyone Mm. who has called, but 1-800-909-9287, or you can go to WBUR.org if you haven't had a chance to yet. We understand things are are busy, but again, you've got this 50% on top of your pledge uh, match that is only available till 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. You've got this uh, uh, this your name going into the pot for this trip around the world. You can just go anywhere you want. They'll help you plan that trip. Uh, but you've got other reasons as well, which is all the news and information that you're getting and all the people right here at WBUR. This is Amory Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks to all the folks who have given already during mm-hmm. WBUR Spring Fundraiser. But if you haven't had a chance yet, do it now and do it in the next two hours because at 10 o'clock this morning, a 50% match will end. And a group of generous Murrow Society members from WBUR have decided to match the pledges coming in by 50%, but only until 10 a.m. And, and you know, we've, we've been talking about you can actually hear and see your money being put to mm-hmm. good use. We are now a multi, really multi-platform media organization. Mm-hmm. We've got, uh, aside from the radio, we've got our website, we've got all sorts of things online, so we have to take into account visuals and, right. you know, video and things that we never had to worry about before. Our podcasts, we have a local news podcast called right. The Common. We just heard from Amory about some of the things in our podcast unit. We are really diversifying, but we are only able to do this if we have your support. We are only able to give you better access to our journalism if we continue to get your support during fun drives just like this one. Yeah, 1-800-909-9287 to contribute to help pay for all of it. And can we talk about Deb Becker for just a second? Because she's not listening. She's, <laughs> having, she's actually having her nails done over in the Will corner. stop with my she's nails? Not, well, only one of us in this room was a former hand model, <laughs> Missy, most gorgeous hands. But is there anyone who does more intense, dogged reporting on mental health mm. and drug issues than Deb Becker? I mean, she's just fierce. I, I know you've heard it o- over the years, and she's got that, uh, you know, she's raised a lot of boys, so when she's doing interviews, she's got that, don't make me come down there <laughs> tone in her voice with her subjects. If you appreciate that kind of dogged... That voice? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> if you appreciate that fierce, determined reporting, how about making a call? 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Thank you, Robin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Surter Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SurterPro.com. That's Serta with a C. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Nashville last night... Tears of rage, tears of grief. Singer Cheryl Crow performed at a vigil for the six victims, including three children, of the shooting at the Covenant School on Monday. First Lady Jill Biden was also there. The officers who killed the shooter inside the school saving lives were honored. Meanwhile, as America deals with yet another school shooting, partisan bickering on gun control continues on Capitol Hill. And Piers Windsor-Johnston has more. Significant gun control measures have repeatedly stalled in Congress. And with Republicans in control of the House, the passage of additional gun restrictions appears that much more unlikely. But Senate Democrats say the fight for stricter reforms is far from over. Senator Ed Markey says passing what he calls common-sense gun laws shouldn't be a back-and-forth issue. We need a federal assault weapons ban now. We need universal background checks now. We need red flag laws nationwide now. More than 125 mass shootings have been recorded in the U.S. so far this year. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
The U.S. military has yet to confirm possible deaths or injuries following last night's crash of two Army helicopters in western Kentucky. Rylan Barton with Kentucky Public Radio says the helicopters went down near Fort Campbell. Two Black Hawk helicopters from the 101st Airborne Division crashed in Trigg County, Kentucky, during a routine training mission, according to Fort Campbell officials. Governor Andy Bashir says fatalities are expected from the incident. Army officials didn't confirm any deaths, but said the command is focused on caring for the service members and their families. Fort Campbell is a 106,000-acre base that straddles the Kentucky-Tennessee state line. It's home to about 27,000 soldiers. For NPR News, I'm Ryland Barton in Louisville. It's unclear if the helicopters collided in midair. In the Philippines, search and rescue efforts continue today after officials say at least 31 people died when a ferry they were on caught fire. Officials say many of the survivors jumped off the vessel and were rescued from the water. That boat was carrying more than 250 passengers. Britain's King Charles is on his first overseas trip as monarch and addressed the German parliament. Villa Marx reports Germany was the destination after a Paris trip was postponed. Pension protests in France put the kibosh on Charles's original travel plan, so instead it was German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier playing host as Britain seeks to repair relations damaged by a Brexit process that Steinmeier pointed out had started exactly six years ago today. Charles, meanwhile, talked up the two countries' united support for Ukraine and refugees fleeing the conflict there. Villa Marx reporting. U.S. futures contracts are trading in positive territory at this hour. Dow futures up about six-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Maura Healey has signed a $389 million supplemental budget. A large chunk of that will go toward food assistance, emergency shelters, and financially struggling child care centers. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports it also includes a financial incentive for growing tech sectors. Semiconductors are in pretty much every electronic product you can think of, and Massachusetts wants to grow its own semiconductor industry. Healy's budget put up $125 million to match potential grants from the federal government. Yvonne Howe is the Secretary of Economic Development. Some of it will be for actually expanding capacity in manufacturing, and these are very good jobs. I mean, these are jobs that are high-paying, where they invest in their people, where they're very specialized skills, and so that is a very exciting opportunity for us. Under the CHIPS program, the Biden administration is targeting billions of dollars to expand semiconductor production in the U.S. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. A new report shows the number of pedestrians in Massachusetts killed by drivers last year jumped 35 percent compared to the year before. That's according to a report from Walk Boston, which says 101 pedestrians died last year. Most of the people were hit after dark and in industrial neighborhoods. Walk Boston is calling on transportation officials to take steps to make the streets safer. Employment rates at Boston-area tech companies are growing despite a wave of layoffs in the industry. A report from the tech industry group CompTIA says employment in the Boston tech industry increased by one percentage point. While layoffs are expected to continue this year, the group says overall employment in tech will go up. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum's famous nasturtium flowers are back on display. The bright orange blooms hang on 20-foot vines from the courtyard balcony. The tradition started more than a century ago by Isabella Stewart Gardner herself. Erica Rumbly, the museum's director of horticulture, says growing the vines is a year-long process. 
On the day of transport from the greenhouse, we usually have about five people along the length of each plant. And the thing that most surprised me the first time I helped install them is holding each plant in the balcony as it's lowered. Each one weighs about 50 pounds. The nasturtiums are expected to remain in bloom for about three weeks. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. In sports, it's opening day at Fenway today. The Sox will play the Baltimore Orioles to start the season. At the Garden tonight, Bruins host the Columbus Blue Jackets, and the Celtics visit the Milwaukee Bucks. Our forecast is calling for sunshine today. Temperatures in the low 40s. Tonight, mostly clear. Lows tonight going down into the 20s. Tomorrow, it'll be cloudy with a chance of an afternoon shower. Highs in the mid-40s and rain in our forecast for Saturday, but temperatures in the 50s. Right now, it is 34 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Paycom, an HR and payroll tool. Designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And give today during WBUR Spring Fundraiser and give by 10 o'clock this morning because until that time, your pledge will be matched dollar for dollar. Whoa, that's new. That is new. It was 50%. It's now a dollar for dollar match from some generous members of our Moreau Society. But you've only got about an hour and 52 minutes left to get in on that. So if you want your pledge essentially doubled in this dollar for dollar match, you need to call now or make that pledge online now and do it by 10 a.m. So your money is doubled. Your money for the news, for all the journalism that you hear on WBUR, and for, for really the satisfaction of knowing that you have helped pay to keep local journalism strong. Here's the number again to call, 1-800-909-9287. The website's WBUR.org, and we should say our names, right, Robin? I'm Deborah Becker in the studio this morning with Robin Young. Good morning, ma'am. There you go. Say our name. Uh, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And we just heard from another name, Rufus Shinoy, who usually occupies this uh, room at this hour. She's had a, a family uh, a commitment, and so she has to be there. And so we're rearranging the furniture. She'll love it, what we did with the place. And you love her. I mean, she has stepped in here and, and just, you know, made it her own. And it's been wonderful to watch. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org for all the people that you have come to depend on, that you wake up and you say they're there. They're going to be there Mm. for me. What if we weren't someday? Because it, you know... It's not wishful thinking that that brings us here. It's really going to that phone and making that pledge. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Again, by 10 o'clock this morning, you get that call in and you can get that dollar-for-dollar match from some other terrific listeners. And let's hear from some listeners, shall we? There's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. 
the programming, you know, local personalities, everything's very grounded here in Boston, it seems. I think we're incredibly lucky to be in a city that has such a rich public radio program. And I think WBR specifically does a great job of connecting people not just to national news and international news, but local. It makes me want to support WBUR. Support your home for public radio. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Or you can make a pledge right now during WBUR's spring fundraiser by calling 800-909-9287. And if you do call now or call at least before 10 o'clock this morning, your pledge for WBUR will be matched dollar for dollar. That's thanks to some members of our Murrow Society who have agreed, who have agreed to match the pledges that come in by 10 o'clock this morning. So, so do it now. Do it because you agree with what you just heard. There is a lot of rich local programming here on WBUR, and, and there's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. I love how that listener put that. <laughs> a lot of Boston here. We're here mm. for you. We're covering your community. We're telling you what's happening right in your backyard as well as what's happening around the world. So we know you appreciate that. Please help pay for it today. 1-800-909-9287 WBUR.org uh, Whatever you do. And by the way, when you go to WBUR.org, there's a great new fleece thing. I just saw that. So look around, mm. and, and you can see. You fleece know, jacket. Yeah, fleece thing. it's a fleece <laughs> thing. Just jacket. It's a beautiful jacket, very fitted. Um, uh, so take a look at the things that you can, you know, we, we try. You know, we have gifts for you uh, as well when you go to WBUR.org. We have this trip possibly for some lucky listener. If you pledge, you get your name into that drawing for a trip around the world, anywhere you want to go. I mean, we're trying our best here mm. uh, to remind you of what we know you want to do, which is step forward and help pay for this news and information that is not compromised by anyone else uh, being the stakeholder. It is you that is the stakeholder. Uh, and we are only indebted to you. Uh, and that's the way we want it. You know, that's the way we, yeah, we have to do these things. We have to do these fundraisers, which are so much fun. Uh, how did that word fun ever get into <laughs> fundraiser? Um, but, do, but we, we know the mic's on. Oh, I'm sorry. Hello out there. No, but we prefer it this way. We'd rather have this than have a phone ringing somewhere and some owner in Australia telling us what right. to do. I'm not referring to Rupert Murdoch at all. But anyway, 1-800-909-9287. You get the point. It's about you. Make that call. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. The community of Nashville is trying to heal after a school shooting this week left six dead, including three nine-year-old children. At a citywide vigil last night, Nashville Mayor John Cooper recognized the police officers who rushed the shooter at the Covenant School and pleaded for a new way free of such violence. With God's help, let us resolve to go forward to create a better future and a future that does not repeat this week's tragedy. First Lady Jill Biden joined Mayor Cooper and other civic leaders along with several musicians who performed at the event that drew hundreds of mourners. NPR's Claudia Grisales joins us now from Nashville. Good morning, Claudia. 
Good morning, Sasha. This was one of several vigils planned for Nashville this week. You were there. What kind of things were you hearing people say? This is obviously a community in the midst of deep suffering and trying to make sense of a senseless tragedy. It was held in the center of the city in downtown Nashville at Public Square Park. This is a popular gathering place here, but of course the occasion was much more somber. Dozens of local and state officials led this vigil as many in the crowd held candles. And we heard moving performances by several musicians, including singer Cheryl Crow. You could see many friends and families huddling in groups, embracing each other, holding each other up in some cases, and some praying and some visibly crying. Did you talk to anyone individually? Yes. And I heard a real range of emotions from people there, from obvious sadness to anger. I spoke with one woman who had been praying with a group she'd just met at the vigil, Carly Spaith, a 19-year-old who attends university about two miles from the Covenant School, who said the vigil marked a significant moment. I think tonight it's really important that we come together just to honor the children and the adults and the families and the school and just the community that was impacted and just continue to pray. Spaith said she had friends who taught at the school and they're all trying to lean on each other now. And Claudia, this is again creating a debate over access to guns. Did you talk to people in the community about that? Yes, and I heard from a lot of people who say the country's woefully behind on limiting access to weapons. One of those was Ray Carol Woodard. She runs a nonprofit called Equity Alliance, focused on black communities. She said the Covenant school shooting has ripped through the entire community, and she's really frustrated. We don't have gun laws, period. We think we do, but they're not sufficient. And also, we're losing our children at the cost of someone's agenda, as someone being mad about a red or a blue party, when it's so much bigger than that. She said she was moved to see so many representatives from around the state and the First Lady there at the vigil, and that it was a reminder that there is still immense support to address gun control. But that all said, this remains an especially difficult issue around the country, and especially in Tennessee, which is led by a Republican governor, a Republican legislature, and they've moved in the opposite direction in recent years to actually ease access to weapons. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales in Nashville. Claudia, thank you. Thank you so much. The shooting at the Covenant School was the country's 130th mass shooting in just these first three months of the year. They're so common, some people have survived more than one. For example, a freshman student who lived through last month's attack at Michigan State University was a senior at nearby Oxford High School last year when a shooter opened fire there. And just the news of hundreds of mass shootings each year can affect a person's sense of safety. To get some perspective on this, we reached out to Michael Davidovitz. He's a family therapist and director of the Project for Adolescents and Their Families at the Ackerman Institute for Family in New York. And I began by asking him what it does to a person to endure multiple mass shootings. When experiencing the chronic stress of repeated trauma, at a certain point, you're just carrying the stress and you don't even necessarily connect it back to the trauma that caused it. You know, the old uh, fight and flight responses that we all learned about in Psych 101, they work well if there's a problem that you can solve by either running away from it or attacking it. But when it comes to repeated stress and problems that just continue to exist 
in our environment, they don't work and we're just left with the behaviors which themselves cause more stress. Does that make a person not want to, I mean, for lack of a better thing to say, go outside? Yeah, I think in terms of kids and, and families, what we're seeing are problems on both ends of that stress reaction spectrum. I'm hearing uh, from all kinds of people who are involved in schools that there's increase in aggression and fights and bullying. And on the other side of it, you know, kids who are increasingly engaging in social withdrawal and depression, because when you're in that state of stress and alarm and vigilance, you're looking for danger. You're not looking for connection. You're not looking for the sustenance that comes from being with other people. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles um, in the 70s and 80s, and the only drills we had to deal with were an earthquake drill and a fire drill. That's it. Mm -hmm. My granddaughters who also go to school in Los Angeles, they have to do a fire drill, an earthquake drill, a bombing drill, and also an active shooter drill. It just seems like we're putting an extraordinary amount of pressure on little kids' brains that might not be able to really understand it or learn how to, how to cope with it. I mean, I find it impossible to understand as an adult. So I, I you know, how, how do we expect um, small children to understand? And it's, it's different, obviously, when you're dealing with the threat of an earthquake as opposed to the threat of another human being coming into the place where you're going to school with an intent to kill people. And how do mass shootings impact us as a society, even if we don't experience them firsthand? I think it makes us scared of each other. We're looking for what's wrong and what this person might be up to, might be possibly doing to us, rather than looking for opportunities to join with people, to have connection. And again, you know, that just that just produces more stress, the more disconnected we feel from each other. You know, affects us in society, affects families. How are family relationships? How have you heard that play out? If there's one place where kids in particular, but all of us, are going to experience safety, it's in connection to the people who we love and who matter to us the most. We've just seen patterns of disconnection in families where kids are isolating, um, not coming forward for connection, and parents are managing their own stress and also feeling kind of helpless to know what to do for their kids as they really see them struggling with incredibly high levels of anxiety and depression. How should we cope? I mean, I know that's a very broad and general question, but I think everyone is just grasping at straws for anything that might help them get through these kinds of situations. I really think we need to work on our relationships. You know, if we're going to feel safe, it's going to be in the family setting. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem to work on family relationships, to look at the ways that stress uh, interrupt um, connection. But it does give us the sense of safety that we really crave. That's Michael Davidovitz, a family therapist and director of the Project for Adolescents and their families for the Ackerman Institute. Michael, thanks. Thank you. Haitian textile artist Mirlan Constan is catching the eye of the contemporary art world. A retrospective of her work just opened at UCLA's Fowler Museum. It's billed as the first solo show for a Haitian woman in an American museum. And Paris Alice Wolfley has more. Mirlan Constant has upended the male-dominated world of sewing voodoo flags, or drapos. 
Using thousands of sequins and glass beads, she stitches intricate glittering scenes of Haitian life and history. Her tapestries, some as wide as nine feet, are filled with symbols and imagery from her voodoo faith. Jerry Philogene, co-curator of The Fowler Show, says she was totally taken aback the first time she saw Constance work. There were these beautiful light bouncing off of the glass, bouncing off of the sequence. And I was just mesmerized by the radiance, the radiance of the work. As Constance's star rises, Haiti is sinking deeper into violence. The political instability there prevented Constant from getting a visa to attend the opening of her show. But despite the challenges, Constant says she does not want to leave Haiti. Her voodoo faith keeps her rooted there. Here she is speaking from her studio in the hills above Port-au-Prince. There are some people who think we are in the business of selling the image of the spirits, but we don't. We work with them because the spirits are always with us. We don't see them, but they are all around us. Haiti is central to Constance's work, and her work is important to Haiti. It provides an alternative to narratives of Haiti as a country in constant chaos. Philogene says this can be seen in Constance's piece about the catastrophic earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010. She's saying that, yes, there is suffering in Haiti, but also, look, there's also people helping people. There's also people understanding and honoring the dead. Many hands go into creating this art. Constance's success allows her to employ more assistants and bring more apprentices into her studio. And Philogene says that the show's catalog is especially important because scholars can use it to advance the study of Caribbean art. It inserts her into the art historical canon, a canon that we know oftentimes has left Black people out, people of color out, queer people, etc. The exhibition also honors the labor of working class artists who exist outside the traditional world of contemporary art. For NPR News, I'm Alice Wolfley. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Hey, it's Dave Martinez from Morning Edition. Isn't it amazing how something as simple as a sound can make us crave a special meal? Wash the grits, wash your meat, fry your meat, put your onion in there transport us across the globe. We start in the coastal city of Zarziz, in the southeast, where a fisherman-turned-cafe owner serves small cups of black coffee. Or introduce us to new traditions. Grab a maraca, a drum, a tin can. Whatever you can use to make noise, you better make it. That's the power of the NPR network, bringing you stories that stay with you beyond the news of the day. This station is an integral part of the network, and so are you. To support journalism that informs and inspires, please take a moment to donate today. Here's how to do it, and thanks. 
You just call 800-909-9287 is the number. You can pledge online at WBUR.org. But pledge right now because we're in our spring fundraiser mm-hmm. here at WBUR. And just for the next hour and a half or so, we have a dollar-for-dollar dollar match on the table. So what that means is that every time you do call with a pledge before 10 a.m., your pledge is matched dollar-for-dollar, dollar, thanks to some generous listeners with our Moreau Society. So please Please call that number now. Go online now. Just make that pledge by 10 a.m. because it's essentially doubled if you do. Hello. I mean, you know, if somebody said to you, I'm going to give you a dollar, you know, to add to a dollar for whatever you're doing, wouldn't you do it? (laughs) So 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And I've I've been mentioning, you know, the the great reporting of Deb Becker and health and and, and addiction issues. We also have Martha Biebinger and Gabrielle Emanuel. Let's Mm -hmm. listen. I'm Gabriella Emanuel, a reporter at WBUR. Massachusetts has one of the only state-run family shelter systems, and many thousands of local families turn to it at their hardest moment. And sometimes it works well, but sometimes it really doesn't. Almost every night there are parents and kids in emergency rooms, like at Boston Children's Hospital, simply because they cannot get into a shelter. It's massive. We have had to dedicate close to 40% of our social work resources to this problem. I spent months convincing hospitals to share their perspective. I talked to families and state officials about their experience. And with this messy and complicated system, I try to distill what's important, what's new, what the implications are, and what matters to families who use the system and to taxpayers who pay hundreds of millions of dollars each year to make our state's family shelter system possible. I will continue to cover this because there are problems and because there are big changes on the horizon. And you can help Gabriella keep covering this story because it affects everyone here in Massachusetts. Mm. Uh, We can't do this. Gabriella can't do this without your financial support. So make your contribution during WBUR's spring fundraiser. Make it today by calling 800-909-9287 or by pledging online at WBUR.org and do it by 10 o'clock this morning because your contribution is matched. Okay. And we actually have some news on this front. We, do. we have heard uh, from a listener, and I, it's remaining anonymous to me at this point. Um, Big but, challenge. Yeah, this Big person challenge. has said they are willing to make a pledge. No, they are willing to cover a pledge, mm-hmm. to match a pledge right now. If someone can has the means right now to pledge $5,000, mm-hmm. and we know that, you know, God bless you, there are people who do. If you are, were thinking of contributing, and if you can pledge 5000 right? Have I got this 5, right? 5000 This listener will match that. Can mm-hmm. you imagine? 10000 just like that. So if you can do it, and you've been thinking about it, and, you know, it's a tax deduction, and if, you know, if this is something you've been meaning to do, if you do this now... There is a listener standing by who will match that 5000 pledge dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. That's a bit of a challenge, right? Uh, can yeah. you can you pledge 5000 Because if you can, I will match it. That's what this uh, listener told us this morning. He's willing to make this offer during this spring fundraiser. But, you know, you don't have to pledge 
$5,000. You can pledge $100. You sure. Can, you can pledge $50. But pledge what you can because this is where the money comes from for all the news and information you expect from WBUR every day. Pledge during this fundraiser because this is where we get our resources from. A couple times a year, Robin, right. we come on. That's it. And we just say, we do how about sending us a pledge? couple things. Whatever you pledge, the story we just heard about family shelters, we know for a fact when you support WBUR and our coverage of these places, there's a ripple effect. People support them. Mm. But also, if you've got $5,000 you could do this with mm. right now, boy, as somebody will cover that dollar for dollar. If you can, boy, we'd love to hear from you. Let's keep those lines open for that person. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water, with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen is in New York as part of a trip to the U.S. and Central America. She's scheduled to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on her return trip to Taipei. China is protesting her stops in the U.S. and is threatening an unspecified response. State Department spokesman Vedent Patel says there's no reason for China to be concerned about Tsai's visit. There's no region for uh, Beijing to turn this transit, uh, which is consistent with longstanding U.S. policy, into something it's not, or to overreact. Supporters of Taiwan's president turned out in New York yesterday, as did those opposed to Taiwan's independence. Hundreds of mourners gathered in Nashville, Tennessee last night to remember the six people shot and killed this week at a private Christian elementary school. President Biden repeated his call for Republicans in Congress to support stricter gun laws following Monday's shooting in Nashville. While walking off the floor of the House yesterday, Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York criticized Republican lawmakers for inaction on guns. What are they going to do? They have control of the House. The American people need to know that they don't have the courage to do anything to save the lives of children. Bowman is a former middle school principal. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Local Democratic lawmakers in the U.S. House are calling on the Republican leadership to act in the wake of the latest school shooting. Three students and three adults were killed at an elementary school in Nashville this week, and Congresswoman Lori Trahan called the lack of action by House leaders disgusting. Apparently, the Republican leadership in the House thinks that the biggest issue facing our children today are the books in their library. Because while we have yet to take up a bill to stop school shootings, the number one killer of our children in America 
This chamber passed a bill last week to politicize our kids' education. At a rally outside the Capitol, Democratic leaders, including Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark, demanded that Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy bring gun control measures to a vote. The head of construction projects for the MBTA is no longer working for the T. People familiar with the matter tell the Boston Globe that James Nieder was fired on Friday. They said he rarely worked in Massachusetts and rarely attended job sites. The the MBTA did confirm that Nieder is not working for the T anymore, but the agency did not say why. New census data show nearly 57,000 people moved out of Massachusetts between 2021 and 2022. That's one of the biggest population losses in the country. Suffolk County, which includes Boston, had the largest number of people leave. About 18,000 people moved out of the county to other states, but about 9,000 people moved into Suffolk County from other countries. The time is 8.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. In sports, Red Sox open their season this afternoon. They'll host the Baltimore Orioles at Fenway. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports on changes to the team and the game this year. New faces on the Sox roster include outfielder Masataka Yoshida and pitcher Corey Kluber. There are also several new rules. The biggest one is the pitch clock, which will require pitchers to throw within a short amount of time. Boston Globe baseball columnist Chad Finn expects it to speed up the game. Broadcasters, players, managers, fans love it because it takes all the wasted time out of games that have just gotten out of hand. Finn predicts 86 wins for the Sox, with the team on the edge of the playoff race. A little bit better than people expected and a lot more fun than they were last year. First pitch is scheduled for just after 2 this afternoon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. And the Celtics tonight visit the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bruins are at home to skate with the Columbus Blue Jackets. In our forecast, sunshine today. Highs in the low 40s. Tonight will be clear with lows going down into the 20s. Tomorrow, clouds, a possible afternoon shower, and temperatures in the mid-40s. Rain on Saturday with highs in the 50s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The water from our sinks, showers, and toilets contains toxic chemicals known as PFAS. As WBUR's Barbara Moran explains, all those chemicals are going into wastewater treatment plants, and the growing concern is, where do they go from there? People dump a lot of stuff down the drain. Just this morning, shampoo, toothpaste, spit, cold coffee, all kinds of stuff. Laura Orlando has seen it all. What gets into wastewater is just about everything that we use in our society because it's the pollution sink for what's out there, which is a big deal when we're talking about PFAS. 
Orlando is a civil engineer and senior science advisor for Just Zero, a nonprofit focused on waste. She says PFAS chemicals are used in thousands of products, like toilet paper, makeup. Some of our clothing can have PFAS in it. And then when we wash them, that wash water goes into the sewer and um, industrial waste. So you name it. In greater Boston, that wastewater ends up at the Deer Island Wastewater Treatment Plant. If you've flown out of Logan Airport, you've probably seen the plant's giant eggs. There are a dozen of them, each 14 stories tall and filled with bacteria eating your sewage. And there's an elevator to the top. So now we're above 124 feet. So we're actually on top of the egg. Correct. We're on a walkway between four of the digesters. Plant director David Duest says they pump the liquid out of the waste, treat it, and discharge it about nine miles out into the ocean. What's left in the egg is the sludge. Duest says it's about the consistency of a frappuccino. And that hum you hear is the sound of a giant mixer stirring the sludge. So right under our feet is like how many gallons of... About 3 million gallons of sludge that spends about 22 days on site before it actually gets pumped to our pellet plant for conversion to a fertilizer. About half the sludge in the U.S. ends up this way, turned into fertilizer pellets and spread on land. These so-called biosolids from Deer Island are used in close to 20 states, including Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania. Biosolids industry advocates say that's way better than the other options, burning it, or throwing it into a landfill. Janine Burke-Wells is the executive director of the Northeast Biosolids and Residuals Association. These are organic materials, so they have carbon, which is great. We're putting carbon back into the soil. Uh, There's a lot of nutrients in there and micronutrients. And when you see what the material does for the soil, it, it is pretty amazing. The problem is those toxic PFAS chemicals, they get concentrated in the sludge and therefore in the fertilizer and there's no cost-effective way to get them out. Deer Island has tested their biosolids for PFAS since 2019. But there are no state or federal rules that say how much PFAS in biosolids is too much. A few states have guidelines, but they vary widely. For instance, fertilizer made from Deer Island sludge is okay under Michigan specs, but not Connecticut's. And Maine has banned the use of sludge-based fertilizers altogether the first and only state to do so. That's because farmers in Maine began finding high levels of PFAS in milk and meat a few years ago. The contamination was traced back to biosolids. It is absolutely tragic to see what's happening to some of these farmers and farm families that are now being faced with not being able to use their land. That's Andrew Smith, the state toxicologist in Maine. The state has become a leader in studying how PFAS in fertilizer gets into soil, plants, and food. And Smith says it's complicated. Like, lots of PFAS seems to end up in corn stalks, but not as much in the kernels. One of the things we've learned is how different the amount of PFAS that can be transferred from soil to plants can be as you look from one field to another even for fields on the same farm. Even with this uncertainty, environmental advocates like Just Zero's Laura Orlando argue that we should stop using sludge-based fertilizer. There is no safe concentration of PFAS, right? 
And so adding it to soil as a fertilizer, it's a, it's a disconnect from the reality of the harm of this family of chemicals. And so the logical thing to do is just not spread it all over the place. People in the waste industry agree that PFAS in sludge is concerning. But without guidance from the state or the EPA, David Duess from Deer Island says they're waiting on the science before deciding where the sludge should go. If it works out to be that there's a concern with toxicity, then obviously we'll do whatever is necessary to make sure that that is prevented in the future. But the sludge from Deer Island, about 100 tons a day, has to go somewhere. And the other options are not great either. Sending sludge to a landfill or burning it costs more money, wastes nutrients, and gives off greenhouse gases. And all those methods leave PFAS behind. So what we're really trying to advocate for is eliminate it at the source. Stop manufacturing and using these, uh, these chemicals. Duess says it's going to be hard to wean the world off the thousands of products containing PFAS. All that stain-resistant clothing and waterproof mascara. But this is a point where both waste industry advocates and environmentalists agree. The best way to keep PFAS chemicals out of water, land, and food is to stop making them in the first place. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests, such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events. More at anunlikelystory.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. I'm in the studio with Robin Young this morning. We just want to take a minute to talk about that story from Barbara Moran mm-hmm. and all of her wonderful environmental reporting. Uh, the series we did last month on PFAS. We are continuing this coverage for you to better understand a big issue in your world. And today, during this spring fundraiser, we're asking you to help us have the money to continue coverage like this in the years to come. Here's what you can do. You can make a pledge during this spring fund drive by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by going online and making your pledge there at WBUR.org. And you should know that right now, only for the next hour and 15 minutes, because this ends at 10 o'clock, your pledge will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to a generous group of listeners from the Murrow Society. So so do it now. Make that pledge. It's doubled. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And we got a super, super uh, ask uh, uh, of you guys. But I just well, I want to stay for a second on the uh, issue of climate change because we, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we have to be all over this. It's just, it's just huge, and we are. Here's Miriam Wasser. Hi, I'm WBUR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser. So Sam Woodman is a young climate activist, and she told the story of what happened during the big nor'easter of 2018 when the street she lived on in Revere just flooded really severely. You can see the ocean from Pearl Avenue, so it's really pretty. It's kind of like this quintessential small town street, even though it's in the middle of Revere. And I remember Sam pointing to this one spot that was maybe 15 feet away from her house, and she said, this is where the water comes up to. 
this is where we all know that if there's a storm coming, we do not park our cars below this point. So when the nor'easter hit, nobody parked there. Everybody parked much farther up the street, but the waters came up in a way that they had never seen before. And that's how they all got in trouble. There was a, a neighbor across the street who had been there for decades and she told me a story about what happened during the storm, that the water came up into their backyard. They're used to the backyard flooding, right? But when the big storm came, the water just came pouring into their basement. We evacuated, we actually evacuated. The water was up to my husband, the middle of his chest in the basement. But I was just really touched by how tight-knit this community was and how attached everyone was to this specific street. This is a working class neighborhood and climate change is going to disproportionately affect those who can least afford to protect themselves. And this story tells us that. We hear so much about climate change and sea level rise in Massachusetts. And here's a story of where it's, it's impacting people. These are the stories that we need to hear and these are the stories that we need to tell so that we can really think about how we're going to tackle this. And if you appreciate the fact that WBUR reporters like Miriam Wasser and, and all of us here in the news organization at WBUR continue to follow the issues about your world and tell you what's going on, then we need you to make a pledge during this spring fundraiser. And please do it by 10 o'clock this morning because we have a dollar for dollar match mm -hmm. on the table that ends in the next hour and 13 minutes. The number is 800 909 9287. And we'll take any pledge. We thank you so much. $5, $10, $25, $50. It just, it will be doubled, you know, if you do it before 10 o'clock. But we have a listener out there mm. who is standing by to match a $5,000 pledge. Please, if you, you know, we always know at the end of a fundraiser, we get these huge pledges by people who think, you know, I can do this. I can do this. Don't wait, because <laughs> here's somebody willing to match a $5,000 pledge. We're looking for you. Can you do it? Can you do it? Do it now. 1-800-909-9287, and thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville. Believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, and gifts at the bookstore's Easter Market through Saturday, April 8th, and unlikelystory.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. Millions of Americans could lose their health insurance over the coming months. That's because a federal rule that protected people's Medicaid coverage during the pandemic expires this Friday at midnight. NPR health correspondent Maria Godoy is with us with details. Hi, Maria. Hi, Sasha. Why is this happening? Well, it's the end of a pandemic era protection. So Medicaid is the public health insurance program for low-income people. Before the pandemic, they had to re-enroll every year, and it's a big red tape hassle. People often got dropped even if they did qualify for coverage. And a lot of times they only found this out when they showed up at the ER or they went to the pharmacy to refill a prescription, and they were told, uh, you're no longer covered. That sounds like a very inefficient system. Well, right. So back in 2020, lawmakers passed this rule that prevented states from dropping people from Medicaid. But that protection ends on March 31st. Maria, how many millions of people are on Medicaid and what does it mean for them? 
Well, there's roughly 85 million people on Medicaid, and every one of them is going to have to re-enroll to keep their benefits. But to be clear, it's not going to happen all at once. States are going to start sending out notices to people telling them when it's time to re-enroll. Some states are asking people now to submit paperwork to prove they're still eligible. Some people might be getting termination notices on April 1st, although they can appeal. But the problem is not everyone is going to get these notices or complete the paperwork on time. This sounds like a major administrative undertaking and potentially chaotic. Right. It's massive because if you think about it, it's been three whole years since people had to renew Medicaid. Now there's more people than ever on the program. A lot of people have moved since the pandemic. Maybe they didn't update their contact information, so they're not going to get those renewal notices from the state. I spoke with Elizabeth Edwards. She's with an advocacy group, the National Health Law Program. She told me Medicaid offices in many states are understaffed and just overwhelmed. Advocates are starting to see problems at call centers with long wait times, as well as call centers just stopping accepting calls because they have enough for the day or they're closed on a certain day to catch up on work. And, you know, roughly one in four Americans are on Medicaid right now. So that's a lot of people to process. Right, about a quarter of the country. So, Maria, for people going through this and trying to keep their coverage, what are some other roadblocks they might run into when trying to re-enroll? Well, there's concern about people with limited English and also those with disabilities. Certain disabilities qualify you for Medicaid, but Edwards says some of the renewal paperwork in some states isn't asking the right questions that can flag conditions that might qualify someone. She says they're also seeing problems with notices that don't tell people why they lost coverage. And if you don't know why, it makes it really hard to appeal. You're describing what could be enormous upheaval in people's lives that they may not even know is coming. Right. And, you know, there's a real human impact here that I don't want to be missed, especially if you have a chronic health condition, a gap in coverage could be incredibly disruptive. Estimates suggest as many as 18 million people are going to lose coverage during this process. So in terms of helping people, is there anything that people going through re-enrollment can do to make this process go more smoothly? Yeah. So make sure your contact information is up to date with your state or local Medicaid agency or the insurance company that runs Medicaid in your state. And please watch your mail for renewal notices. Thank you for those tips. That is NPR health correspondent Maria Godoy. My pleasure. Some iPhone users will soon be able to use their phones to pay for purchases in installments. It's called Apple Pay Later, and it lets users apply to split purchases up to 1000 bucks in four payments with no interest or fees. But is it risk-free? Lauren Saunders is associate director at the National Consumer Law Center. Lauren, Apple says uh, its Pay Later service was designed with financial health in mind. Are there any downsides? Um, well, uh, buy now, pay later products, you know, can be better than a credit card if they help you avoid uh, paying a lot of interest or amassing debt that you pay for months or years. Um, but they can be tricky because they can make things look cheaper than they are and people can uh, add up uh, debt in surprising ways. Look cheaper than they are. That is a dangerous phrase, Lauren. Right. Well, you're looking to buy something and you think, hmm, can I afford it or not? And you see this yeah. option, hey, pay 25% right now, pay the rest later. It makes things look cheaper and stores like it for that reason, because people spend more yeah. when they buy it using buy now, pay later. 
and the whole buy now, pay later thing is a, is a rapidly growing industry. How is Apple Pay Later different from other pay-as-you-go providers or from just uh, an old credit card? Well, um, Apple Pay Later will be integrated into the Apple Wallet, so it would be very easy to use if you're buying something using an Apple device. Uh, they apparently are not going to give you the choice of uh, linking your payments to a credit card, which is a good thing because you don't want to have the worst of both worlds uh, still paying interest on your credit card. Uh, but other than that, I think it'll be pretty similar to the other Buy Now, Pay Later products on the market, Klarna, Afterpay, et cetera. What kind of consumers use Buy Now, Pay Later services? Well, most uh, people who use Buy Now, Pay Later do have other credit accounts. Uh, they tend to be younger. Uh, there's a higher percentage of people who are Black, Latino, females, and they tend to be lower income. A lot, large percentage of people who have uh, $20,000 to $50,000 of income uh, use Buy Now, Pay Later. And what kind of things are they buying with Buy Now, Pay Later? Well, it started primarily with the fashion industry, uh, but really you can buy you know, almost anything these days. You can buy airplane tickets, even groceries, certainly clothing, appliances. It's becoming quite widespread. Is buy now, pay later regulated by the government like credit cards are? <laughs> uh, well, it should be. Uh, we <laughs> think it's basically a credit card, uh, and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is looking at that. But right now, uh, the buy now, pay later companies are not giving you the same protections that you have with a credit card. You don't. There's no uniform set of fee disclosures. You don't get the same kind of chargeback protections if you don't get what you paid for. You don't get statements that collect all of your purchases in one place. So, if I have a dispute with a with someone that's selling me something, do I have a recourse at all with that? The companies mostly have voluntary policies, mm. and uh, you know they do give you the right to, to dispute something, but it can get tricky if um, you return an item, but then you still have this loan. It's just not as seamless as it is with a credit card, and you don't have the same legal rights. So Lauren, as briefly as possible, is this overall just helpful for people who can't access traditional credit? I think it's something to be uh, wary of because people tend to use it thinking it's cheaper, um, but they can end up with a lot of debt that can be more problematic. Lauren Saunders is with the National Consumer Law Center. Lauren, thanks. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9282. 87 or go to our website wbur.org. I'm Deborah Becker. I'm in the studio this morning with Robin Young. This mm -hmm. is our spring fundraiser, but we've got another deadline that we'd like you to remember because this is only an hour away. If you can make your pledge for independent journalism, independent, strong, comprehensive journalism in the next hour, because this ends at 10 a.m., your pledge will be doubled. We have a dollar for dollar match on the table from some generous members of our Murrow Society. So we're asking 
asking you to meet the deadline of 10 o'clock this morning and take advantage of that dollar-for-dollar match. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And yes, any pledge. And we understand, by the way, it's a moment to say, Maybe it's not a good time for you, and that's fine. You know, uh, get some comfort here if that's what you need in your life because other people will step forward. To those other people, you just heard me. You know, we need you to step forward to help someone who can't do it. Maybe there was a time when you couldn't, and to pay for what you are getting out of this radio station in any amount. And, yeah, we're looking for somebody who can make a big gift right now of $5,000 because there's someone standing by who's saying, I'll take care of that one, and mm. uh, we'll match that dollar for dollar, but only by 10 o'clock this morning. And it's because of all the news and information that you are hearing, and then also voices like this one. This is Ira Glass of This American Life from Public Radio International. One of the things that makes public radio different is the way that it's funded. We have the most idealistic system, the fairest system, the best system in the world. That is, those of us who listen all the time, those of us who like the kinds of stories and shows and analysis and music and authors that are on this radio station every day, those of us who like that kind of thing, we all pitch in together, and that's how it stays on the air. Public radio equals public support. If you can help out, give a call. Give a call at 800-909-9287 or pledge online at WBUR.org. And it is the Ferris system. You pledge. All of us get together, make our pledges, and make sure that this radio station has the money it needs to bring you the news. And then guess what? We're not beholden to anyone for our editorial no decision-making. We are only beholden to you to make sure that you get the information that you want and that you need to understand the world. If you appreciate that. Make that pledge now and do it in the next hour while this dollar for dollar match is on the table. Please. 1-800-909-9287. It's for voices like Ira Glass who, you know, helps you step back for a second and sometimes laugh, a lot of times cry. You know, a lot of the weekend programming, I love that. But we also try to bring you moments of joy on our show here and now. We say, oh, where's the joy? We need some joy in there because there's, you know, the news lanes that we have to be in are sometimes so dark. So go to our website. You know, Josh Groban is uh, helming the new Sweeney Todd on Broadway. We have that story for you. We have a wonderful story about women's anthems uh, in honor of uh, Women's History Month. Okay. Everybody wear a party hat. Uh, a lot of our younger colleagues were like, wait, Loretta Lynn sang a song about, you know, the pill? Yes, she did. Uh, you know, listen to that. There's such joy in there. We try to bring it all to you, uh, but we can't do it without you. 1-800-909-9287. And remember, you've only got an hour left. Actually, if you want to be technical about it, a little less than an hour right I now. I do want to be technical. You want to be technical? Yes. Okay. You've got about a little less than an hour right now to take advantage of the fact that your pledge will be doubled until 10 a.m. We've got a dollar for dollar match on the table. It ends at 10, so call now 800-909-9287 or online at WBUR.org. Thank you. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.